Hello and welcome to episode four of the Warfighter podcast. I'm Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello, Tom. Hello, Mr. Jet Setter. New in from ITSEC 2022. And where are you now? Just a few days off. But yeah, so recording from a hotel room. I'd sort of forgotten that I was due to take some leave. Uh, uh, And and I'm not sure what time zone I'm in. Sleep's difficult, but hey, crack on. (laughs) I've been hearing a bit more about your fan mail, Tom. So what's the latest on that? Not fan mail. It's uh, our emails that are people contacting us with feedback and suggestions, which I'm sound like I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. Like it, it's hugely valuable, and I really, really enjoy receiving them. And I think we do because, it, like we say every single week, we want to test and adjust, and we want to change what we do to make sure it's optimized for people that are actually listening to it. So don't be backwards and coming forwards. So this one, Colin, I don't think you've actually heard this feedback yet, but it says, "Tom, thanks very much. You're amazing. I wish you could." No, I'm joking. It doesn't say that. Um, it says, "Tom, it says Tom, thanks very much for being involved in the podcast, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. On the robotics episode, I thought you missed a slight trick in not discussing and distinguishing between live dry training and live fire training. Quite a lot of this discussion centered around the importance of training in the field. Can't believe anyone would disagree. But I wonder whether there's a follow-up discussion to be had about the relative benefits of live fire versus live dry training, particularly when advanced technological engagement simulations can be given data on accurate and effectiveness what do you think yeah it's it's a huge topic this almost looks at some of the work i know that's going on with us army on convergence it's really deep it might be more than one episode if anyone wants to come and talk about that we'd be really happy to have you so yeah please um you know just on that tom i think one of the episodes went out last week and there was already some engagement on linkedin so i think we don't care where the messages come but Mm -hmm. it's really good to have people sort of asking questions and connecting maybe with some of our guests as well so that's really good to see yeah the uh, last episode we promised we'd update listener on our visit to the improbable office and actually more recently you know you've been to itsec as well so you've seen the improbable offering in the flesh how do you want to do this shall i cover our visit to the office and then you let, let me know how it actually kind of yeah can you give us a bit of a briefing on what we saw at shoreditch at the improbable offices we uh, turned up prompt and on time, as you'd expect, and kindly shown through to the comments room. And it was, it was really, I mean, the offices are cool, but the main effort was there was to launch that partnership. And so there were a whole bunch of different companies there. All What was nice to see was the kind of the mindset of the people there, not only the kind of energy enthusiasm of the people in the room, but it felt like there was a, a really good... <laughs> safe space to discuss ideas and despite having these two crusty podcasters come and, and talk about what we do and we also got a chance to go and see the development of the itsec demo in person and speak to the development team and that was exciting and good fun and also see the the way that they designed the partnership day and all the different breakout rooms and brainstorming sessions that were happening so no, it was a good day and also very good nibbles at lunchtime i have to say yeah that always changes the point of view i did get a chance to see the live demo at it's sick on the show floor in between running around you know it always looks a bit shiny a bit more fantastic out there um, the booth looked great there was definitely lots of interest there's definitely uh, decent sized crowds looking at that and probably add that this is one of the challenges that has been bugging simulation since ever I've been involved in it so it's almost like a little bit of a holy grail for simulation what I think probably they're trying to do which is great to see and you know to mirror your comments Tom 
definitely a collaborative atmosphere. You know, they had a lot of the partners on their booth. Some of the people I know quite well, they were definitely interested in saying, right, how do we collectively solve the problem as opposed to, hey, we've got all the answers, which I'd like to think that's generally the way we're going, that more collaborative approach in in our market. But that's me just being optimistic. But if if that's (laughs) the way forward, then more power to them. Briefly, can you describe what their kind of demo was? Yeah, so probably the best way to talk, and and I will sort of steal words of some of the improbable guys that briefed us, but it was about connecting disparate simulations together and then having it built in a sort of modular fashion. So if you want to do more work in the sort of C2 space or intelligence analysis or you do sort of sentiment analysis or you do you care about sort of whole world simulation, you'd be able to almost have a menu of different simulation applications that would plug in. And, you know, with very little effort. So, and this has come out some of the recent army publications as well, having systems that can be spun up relatively quickly. So in sort of days or weeks, as opposed to years, which is what's traditional. So as I say, a bit of a holy grail, if we can genuinely spin up the applications as, as required and the number of applications as well, because they don't only want the depth and breadth and they want the quantity. So it's like, We've got to do all these things. So not a small challenge and not something you can do at a small scale. It needs serious investment. So it's really interesting to see. I wish I was out there. I do. I had serious FOMO (laughs) last week looking at all the posts on LinkedIn. So I'm moving on to our interview this week. It is another corker, and I genuinely think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Chris Covert, the executive producer for gaming, exercising, modeling, and simulation at Microsoft. Chris Covert, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I know you're a busy guy, and so I really do, we really do appreciate you taking the time. Today, this interview is the first time where we are the Warfighter podcast are united in location. So hopefully the sound quality will good enough. I hope you can hear us clear enough. It's an honor to be a first here. Hopefully my New York-based Wi-Fi is good enough to hold the call. Can't be any worse than my Forest of Deans. Let's not get into that. Otherwise, I'll start crying and throwing toys out the pram. <laughs> so with tradition, Chris, please introduce yourself and let us know why we should listen to what you have to say. Oh, man. Uh, well, <laughs> let's let's try. I'll do my best. Chris Covert, been in the modeling and sim community for only about a decade. Younger <laughs> in the industry, but currently at Microsoft, doing a lot of our work behind modeling and simulation in an industry we're calling GEMS, gaming exercise modeling and sim after the U.S. Defense Science Board public of the same name. Background in deep reinforcement learning and autonomy. Been doing sim for as long as I've been interested in computer science. So it's an honor to be doing it here. And oh man, do I have a lot of opinions and, and I'm glad we get to talk about it today. <laughs> we hear AI a lot. It's a very common phrase used and probably, I suspect, by people that don't fully understand it. So let's just pretend we don't understand it. I don't. Can, I, I, before we start, I, I'm going to be the first. I don't understand pretend. it. You know, we asked you for something you were passionate about and instantly you jumped to AI. You almost bit our hand off to say, look, AI is an area that I want to wax lyrical about. So we're looking forward to this. I think the first area of interest is what are the sort of examples that you've come across where you used an anger AI and give us some of the examples where it's worked for you. Oh, man. Let's see. To start, (laughs) before we even jump into examples, I think we need to talk about how there's two different camps of AI. When we say AI, unfortunately, half the room thinks one thing and half thinks the other. Not uncommon with terms that are catch-alls or generalizations for a ton of different opportunities or a ton of different application spaces for it. I would say when we talk about game AI or AI and modeling and simulation, it's when you think of traditional video game artificial intelligence versus artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is 
backed on either a data structure like you would have in a machine learning architecture or in a reinforcement learning architecture. They are two very different camps and have two different outcomes. Unfortunately, just by happenstance of our language, they have shared the same term and therefore get interchanged a lot. So before we even jump into use cases, talking about the value of going on the game AI route versus the value of using something more attuned to a reinforcement learning model has huge implications and and ramifications. Chris, I did a little, I mean, I I start from zero as well, but I did do a bit of background reading on this. Wikipedia. Um, Yeah, just a Wikipedia reading. But, (laughs) but, you know, under that title of AI, there's a whole swathe of technologies and techniques. I mean, including things like computer vision, you know, looking at sort of decision trees, natural language processing, all of which are actually very different, aren't they? Very different. Fortunately and unfortunately. The magic of AI as a catch-all is that you can use one term and mean just about anything. (laughs) So when you have a hard problem that needs to be done, you can probably put AI to it. And to a lot of people, that's enough. It sets you on the right path forward. Unfortunately, for the people that love AI, it means that there are a billion different architectures you have to sift through before you find the one of value that hits that right requirement. You're spot on. And we can go into machine learning. We can go into the difference between supervised versus unsupervised learning. The value of game AI in a lot of modeling and simulation, I'll make the I'll make the bold claim here on the record. This is, first of all, to say the opinion of me, myself, Chris Covert, not the opinion of the company that I work for here. I would say a lot of modeling and simulation utilizes game AI more than machine learning because you don't need true, robust machine learning applications for a lot of what we consider you know, non-playable character actions. The benefits of game AI, genuinely, there are a ton of them because the value add of using an artificial intelligence system in a mod sim experience is that you're prescribing actions that are meant to feel realistic to a non-playable character. In order to do that, you don't need full machine learning or deep reinforcement learning applications. Now you can get better fidelity out of those sometimes, but there are trade-offs. And in a mod sim environment, it's all about trade-offs. We know that it's our industry. The value of game AI is it doesn't have to be pre-trained. And in most cases, when you're developing this AI, it's in environments where it really can't be because you are developing in an unfinished environment. You have very limited players. You have limited playthroughs. You don't have a data set of all the possible actions or a headless version of this that you can run as a Monte Carlo and collect all of the optimized decisions that can be made. You're doing this in a very simple, constrained environment. So constrained game AI is more than okay. So why why haven't I yet come across a game or a simulation, defense simulation, where I'm playing against an AI or training against an AI who are doing things realistically, doctrinally well, but also realistically. So if I suppress the enemy position, they're going to behave like they're being suppressed. I haven't yet personally trained against an AI where I felt that if I do the realistic things well, I'm going to get the outcome about this in this training scenario that I want. Invariably, you know, I end up gamifying it. And you know, if I shoot a window, I know that I'm going to attract that soldier to the window and therefore I can shoot them in the head. That's that's obviously unrealistic. If I was shooting a real you know, a window frame, that soldier is going to be anywhere other than that window frame. And then that's a different thought process. So why haven't I yet come across that? It is a very good question. I would say it, to overgeneralize it, it's because the state space of these free actions is just too large to capture. It, it comes down to constraint realism. So you can think of, and I love the alpha series of AI, right? AlphaGo. When you 
talk to some of these players or you look at their interviews on playing these super optimized machine learning or deep reinforcement learning agents that are playing well above the best of the best in their field, it feels like they're playing an alien because they're making human decisions that don't feel human, right? They're making optimized decisions, not realistic ones. And it's difficult when you, the more advanced the machine learning model can get, the more you're throwing information into a black box, for a lack of better terms. It's hard to prescribe what realistic looks like without overfitting that data set to things that you think might be realistic, because it's going to look for optimum. It's a mathematical model. It's looking for max and min. The nice thing about game AI is that there are ways that you can throw those constraints and actually prescribe some of those transitions to make it feel more realistic without having to dive into a super deep machine learning architecture. It's again, recognizing what that ideal state space looks like, what those ideal transitions look like, and then creating an architecture that actually follows suit through those desired actions. And I'm guessing one of the things that may force us down this sort of game AI or decision tree route is for machine learning, you need to have to have enough data and probably enough good data in a format that you can train the machine. Is, is that a correct statement? Depends on the model. There are, again, at a very high level here, there's kind of two approaches to a machine learning model, let's say a supervised or unsupervised structure to it. And it's all about how that data is structured. Now, this isn't considering reinforcement learning, which we'll get to for sure. But if you're going with a database and you want to train a model off of that data, a supervised model says, I understand what my data is through its label, right? I'm going to use a computer vision analogy here. If I have a data set with a whole bunch of dogs and a whole bunch of cats in it, a supervised model says, I have a data set that is labeled for each image of a cat that it is a cat. My data is self-aware that it is a cat. Then I train that in the model and I can use that to differentiate cats versus not cats, right? These are used for things like classification or regression. An unsupervised model says, I'm going to throw all of my data together and not differentiate between what is a cat or what isn't a cat in the data itself. It's unlabeled. So I can then use clustering to determine this is group A and this is group B. Now a user would recognize that as group cat and group dog. It also is good for anomaly detection. If I throw a lizard into the mix, you'll have group cat, group dog, and group lizard. You also might not, right? These things aren't perfect. You might have group cat, group dog, and the lizard is in group dog. But it is good for anomaly detection depending on how you format that data set. That becomes the more data you have a very arduous and manual process in a lot of ways. The benefit of something like reinforcement learning, and there are a whole bunch of different reinforcement learning on or off policy models, you can run these without data sets and it will look to find optimal behaviors like uh, SARSA learning is one of my favorites because the way you explain the acronym is actually just the name of the acronym. SARSA stands for State Action Reward State Action. So let's think of Mario, right? Mario has a state. He's standing on this 2D plane. We're going classic Mario. None of the crazy, super fun 3D Marios. Only way to go, mate. Only way to go. We're jumping linearly onto some Goombas in this analogy. No rotation necessary. State is I know where I am in relation to my environment. My action is maybe I'm going to move right, I'm going to move left, I'm going to jump, or I'm going to squat. My reward is, depending on what that action did, how valuable that reward was in the grand scheme of what I view as my overall weighting for personally how I have my reward system set up. So if I'm playing Mario, I'm going to reward moving right and deprioritize moving left because it's a side-scrolling game. If you go left, you don't make it. If I get hit by a Goomba, that's a negative reward. If I jump up and I smash a barrel, that's a positive reward. If I jump up and I smash a block, 
maybe that's more of a neutral reward. If I get a mushroom, great reward. So depending on that action, you assign a reward value to it. And then you go through your state action pair again for your next state action. And the Sarsa model is running through all of these different states and actions and gathering a total score based on a run. It knows what actions led to what rewards, and it's therefore going to try and optimize through a series of runs that it's going to do the best, most optimal way to run through that environment. But that's the key here. And I think that's the thing that the ModSim community for reinforcement learning models and deep reinforcement as well, is it requires environmental knowledge. So it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it is, it's not turnkey to take a model trained in one environment and adapt it to a new environment. And as ModSim enthusiasts and maybe lifers on the call here today, we understand just how difficult it is to model these operational environments in particular as the foundation of this, let alone use those to start developing agent behaviors. It's normally you want it the other way around. You're developing these behaviors and you're creating this environment to have a fully fledged environment that now your agents are trained to means they're not as modular, which could actually limit the value of that ModSim environment where again, game AI doesn't have all of those constraints. It makes it a lot easier to be more plug and play with your logic. So just going back to Tom's original question, where do you think the problem is in terms of developing that realistic AI, something that feels, you know, to use a bad term, doctrinally correct? What do you think is missing? Is it data or is it time? Is it is it sort of complexity of the model? What, what are we missing here? I'll, I'll say all of the above and I'll throw it under another catch-all term just called scalability. I think if you look at some of the examples of using reinforcement learning well in games, full stop. I love to talk about Forza. Now, the Forza line of racing games, you have the more sim side of the house and the more arcadey side in Horizon, right? Motorsport and Horizon are two different styles of racing games. One of them is more of a simulator, one of them more an arcade driving game. Both of them popular Xbox games played by millions of people. The story I love to touch back to, and I wasn't a part of this team, I would have loved to have been. I was probably in like middle school though. My favorite thing they did was between their shift in more on-prem cloud sources and their Azure cloud source, Xbox 360 to Xbox One, fact check me, Wikipedia fact checkers, if you're, if you're listening to this, they had all of their drivers now being able to collect all of this data in a hyperscale cloud environment, right? You went from an on-prem data center to a cloud-based environment. You had millions of users running all of these laps and they're just sitting on all of this massive data. And you're trying to drive against AI competitors there as well, right? You're in your grid of 12 to 16. And as soon as the race starts, if you're playing single player in particular, you start driving and you have 11 other people driving right next to you that need to feel realistic or you immediately break your immersion. So what they did was they actually ran a whole bunch of reinforcement learning models to overhaul how they do predictive braking, line following, and driver aggression. So this is going to be when you come out of a draft, how quickly you break in and out of a turn, when you actually take tight turns or wide turns. They ran a reinforcement learning model to make the computer feel more realistic in those three domains. Now, the state space can be constrained to those three domains because those are really the most important that separate amateur from elite drivers, right? I am a really, really, really bad go-kart driver because I don't know when to break into a turn. And I think I'm good at the other stuff. Maybe I'm a little aggressive as well. <laughs> but genuinely, breaking around a turn and line following is the difference. That shaves seconds off of each lap. 
So to be able to run these models was interesting because you could create a general model and then do some, you know, random number generation, some slight perturbations of that model to make it feel more randomized, to make it feel like each agent was operating on a different behavior model. But they didn't. They actually took it down to the individual level. They said, if I race a couple of laps on these tracks, it will create a model of how I do preventative braking and line following and driver aggression so that if I go offline, you guys can race against a version that feels like me, even though I'm not there. That is, to me, a microcosm. It is a it is a, an example of what is to come as we start to scale out the ability to run these models with much larger state spaces. Those are three parameters that they train these models on. And even that feels Herculean sometimes when you think about what has to go into that data. They also had millions of drivers racing all of these laps. So yes, I think we'll get to a point where you can have doctrinal agents running on a reinforcement learning model, but you have to think of just how complex each action has its dependencies, that state space grows so quickly, so fast. Probably a stupid question. Let's take Call of Duty or other games that are out there that are proper more mil-sim, armor, squad, whatever it might be. They're all being played online and there are you know, thousands of millions of engagements happening online constantly. And individuals must react in certain ways to the proximity of a certain explosion around landing near them being shot. Is there something to learn from the games industry and and a way that civilians fight? Could could there be something that we could draw out of that data to help us either create better AI or or even maybe create new military tactics? If we see a reoccurring pattern that actually if you, I don't know, throw a flashbang and a HE grenade in a certain order and then run in through the wall, through the window, then we, we've learned that 95% of the engagements end positively. Is there something that we could pull in the future could pull out from that? I, I hope so. I think that that is a natural transition from where we are now. I actually have seen it done in a couple of different ways. Unfortunately, none that I can openly talk about here, but hopefully that we'll all get to see uh, in the next coming years. There is an art to using reinforcement learning models on like legacy footage or gameplays or playthroughs or training footage to actually better understand what that state space looks like, those transition points. So if A, then B, If you manually were to code that entire state space, right, like in a finite state machine or in a hierarchical finite state machine, then you can run a decision tree through all of those actions. You could do it in real time. You could feel realistic, but you would be constrained by what you identified as a state and a transition out of that state, your triggers. Running a reinforcement learning model to identify those triggers and then putting that in a state space that you can run in real time is, to me, a really good blend of the two different types of, when we say AI, them coming together in harmony, using reinforcement learning to say, these are the possible reactions to that state. I'll go back to the Mario. When I get close to a Goomba, I need to jump. That is an overly simplified example. But in the mod sim environment, there are a lot of those, I need to jump at a Goomba moments. So Mm. it's grenade through the window. I duck to the left or, you know, I back out of the room. Not I look at the grenade for five seconds, like most players might. (laughs) Running that, figuring out what is optimal and then using that to code into a a state space, to me, is a perfect blend and is probably a a good patch until we get to a full end-to-end reinforcement learning model in real time. 
I mean, there's, there's maybe an interesting parallel in development of self-driving or autonomous vehicles where there's a number of different organizations building synthetic environments purely to train these systems. And you get to the concept of the dojo. And the dojo is essentially having to run on supercompute architecture because that's the sort of scale. It's a bit like any other model. You know, when we build economic models, the micro-simulation models for predicting policy outcomes in government, they run on supercompute. But I don't think we're doing that on the sort of training and military side yet for that. I mean, maybe, again, maybe there's some that is and, and it's not not within our, our knowledge base. But is that where we need to get to? Developing that dojo that where we can train before we even start training, we have to have the dojo to train the systems. It is an awesome question because you think of some of those dojos exist already in the commercial space. You think of things like OpenAI Gym is a hugely popular one. There are these places where models can be trained, surely, but again, the better the model, the more it's being trained in that operational environment. So you would need for the best models today to be training it in the place you want to deploy it, which is sometimes infeasible, sometimes cost intractable, sometimes just based on timing, not possible. I think that as these, especially 3D, and I'll say, you know, 3D geospatial, georeferenced environments become more mod sim standard will have a better global i'll say like ai gym dojo 2.0 to move forward to but right now the industry is still a little sparse on adopting that as an open standard for how we build out these sims i think there is still a little bit of of ambiguity around what these environments look like and feel like to have a common model system a, a model dojo to help train a lot of these models it's still a lot of application specific training I, I mean, definitely see a future in in combining that, though. Well, what's really interesting is, you know, historically, geodata has been under some classification. What we're seeing is more and more the high-resolution data is actually just commercially available. So what's missing is things like the kinetic data, the munition data and effects. And that's what we probably might never have. But I guess you see the military need to combine that, the publicly available data in high definition with that effects data, which only they have and pull that together to create that environment where we can train our AI and you know, discover, you know, going back to Tom's point, how do you discover new approaches that you never thought of, new doctrine, new techniques? The best part about AI is just how quickly it grows. I left my master's program you know, not too many moons ago, and it's almost unrecognizable from where I left it. Each individual field of anything you could classify as machine learning, deep reinforcement learning has evolved year over year at like record breaking pace. I am generating images using diffusion models, using all, you know, all of the fun image generation tools through AI right now that I could possibly get my hands on because genuinely hour by hour, the industry is reinventing itself. The open source support, the commercial off the shelf availability and the government off the shelf in our case, applications for a lot of the tools we're using are exponentially growing year over year. When I started doing Sims about a decade ago, geospatial was not anything new, but from a decade ago to now, I almost have, I'm spoiled for choice on how much geospatial data sources I can pull in open, how easy it is to work with partners that are geospatial providers, both on-prem and in the cloud. It's great. I think the ModSim community is going there. We're vectoring in a very good direction for building these more open environments that we can train generalized models on. And man, I wait until a year from now where this comment seems super archaic in that we only had spoil for choice and geospatial. It's a matter of time before we hit that in ModSim across the community the way we're growing now. 
Stupid question number three, and I promise this may or may not be the last one. Where's AI going to go? Where could it end up? Is there Skynet or whatever it's called? You know, is it is AI going to take over the world? Or actually, is that just something that's made up for films? And actually, AI is not as clever as we like to lead ourselves to believe. And, and we're nowhere near this sentient being that starts, you know, work out ways to end humankind. Oh man, I think pessimistic. If anyone listening to this knows me, they'll know that I'm, I'm pragmatic. I think human use of AI is going to lead to our demise well before any general artificial intelligence or, or general intelligence model. I think personally that the state of AI we'll see in the not too distant future is just more ubiquity, right? We use AI for so many things that don't feel like they're AI right now. They feel incredibly natural and a natural part of our lives. I love to see the adoption of things like digital assistants. I don't know a person who doesn't use a digital assistant like it's something that's always been around. Watching my own family, especially ones who are older, they don't know how to send a text message, but they can talk to their digital assistants like they're their neighbors, they're their roommates. They go way back. Mm -hmm. I think through things like transcription and translation, we've seen AI just become adopted by society. I'm super excited for a time where in experiential AI, meaning like game AI or, or action behavior sets, things just feel incredibly natural everywhere. Probably worth just sort of winding one second back because you, you, know, you, you mentioned there's things that we're using every day and they're good because we don't realize they're AI, AI and, and use one example and that's things like Google Translate. And actually Google Translate isn't just a rules-based process, but it's actually developed from analysis, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning analysis of lots and lots of use of common language. And I use it every day and it's, it's quite interesting because you can tell what language that the AI has been looking at it's, by its responses. It's fascinating. Again, how models are trained, Google's been doing AI for a very, very long time. I have a couple of really good friends at Google. They will eat, sleep, breathe AI, I imagine, until the, you know, the end of their careers. The best part of AI is when you can smuggle in the innovation, right? Overly forward AI, again, the reason we're even having this conversation is because AI is a very industry hot term. Programs are sold on their ability to leverage AI, and that's it. Leveraging AI, period, isn't a requirement in some docs and you hate to see that as the AI guy because you you look at that and you go oh man we have a lot of work to do we have a lot of education when you can make AI feel like it's not AI like it's just a very simple computer program you've hit a really good sweet spot now that to me can be done at smaller scales because models can be shrunk and put into mobile experiences for large scale mod sim we're still at that point especially when you're running these in game engines where you have to adjudicate these decisions super quickly so it's just not there at scale yet you you feel when you're running a deep reinforcement learning model in a mod sim because your frames start to crawl, but that won't be the case forever. And when we start to hit that threshold, which I think we're actually at now, you will start to see advancement in these models probably blow us all away, right? We'll look back at a time where this wasn't industry standard and be like, how did we even do this? How did ModSim survive for decades and decades and decades? I think you're right. You know, I have that feeling as well, where we look at this and I feel where we're sort of slightly looking bleary eyed at this and trying to get our heads around AI. And I think the question is, for those our listeners that are embarking on the these projects and looking at how they should start with AI. What's your sort of top three, four, five, or whatever you know, tips to someone that's never used it before? What are the obvious mistakes people make that you would recommend they be aware of? I would say number one is just understand the taxonomy. Understand what's out there and the, the different applications of AI. Don't start with theory unless you have a super mathematical background and that's all you care about. Start with an application that interests you. For me, 
It's GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks. GANs are super fascinating to me. I love working with them. It is what gets me inspired to start identifying models that are open that I might want to use for my own purposes, like upsampling or you know super resolution models, taking old photos from the, the 80s, the 90s, the 60s, the 70s for my parents. That ages me for the colors on the, the line here. Sorry, guys. And running them through a super resolution to make them feel like modern photos. Super fun. And then from there, you can start to tinker with the model, you can start to maybe train your own versions of these models if you have the right capabilities. And you can really get in from the application side and not really have to care about the theory until you really want to make some severe modifications of it. I love that because not every model and not every application is for everybody. There are parts of AI that to me are super boring and I probably will not touch them because there are alternatives to implementing those models that I prefer in other forms. On the game AI side, I think there's also a way to not have to worry about artificial intelligence slash machine learning, which will just bin that as the ML side of the house and do the more decision tree side. I think there are really accessible ways to get involved in those communities as well. There are tons of game engine opportunities or providers out there that you can just jump right in and start developing today. Massive communities to help you just get off the ground with, I need an environment with an agent and an adversary. And I just want to start having that adversary make decisions. One of the things right now, it's not a new topic that I love to talk about with people interested in game AI is this thing called goal-oriented action planning, because it's a really fun way of visualizing how humans make decisions. And it feels super fun and modular. It has its own drawbacks like everything, but GOP is a great way to start if you're looking into game AI. So to summarize, I think what you're saying is dig a little, understand the taxonomy and use the right tool for the job before you dive in and go, hey, this is AI, because yeah, not, not all AI is, is the same. Not all is created equal. They have very different outcomes as well. If you really want to get into AI and you drive really, really deep and you dive deeply into one field, at the end of that tunnel might not be the thing that you thought it was or the thing that is relevant to what you want to do with it. So just understand the landscape. It's such a big landscape. The value of deep reinforcement learning versus reinforcement learning, the value of neural nets and all of the different flavors of them, what they can do in conjunction with other models. A lot of AI is done in pipelines. So just start to understand at a high level what the different applications are, and you can start to piece together your own pipeline of what you want it to do. And there's a community to support you throughout the process. Very polite way of saying get educated. Sounds like hard work, that does. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of hard work. My last dumb question, and then we can wrap up. When does a line of code, which is an if then else statement or whatever it might be, when does something like that switch to becoming AI? Because if I'm creating a product, it's a smart wearable and it can tell my heart rate and I want to know if there's been a rip in the mesh of my smart wearable and the heart rate increases or decreases and then I want to send a message back to the ops room to say that there's a potential risk of injury. Is that AI or is that just an if then else process that a, a normal algorithm is written and where does it the line merge it's the ultimate question and the reason we're talking today right to some people that's ai linear regression is ai to people with a background in mathematical ai ml they'll spit on the floor and go hey that's <laughs> that is not ai that's linear regression I don't think that matters. I think analytics, there's no fine line between what is linear regression versus a decision tree versus a uh, reinforcement learning model. It's the nuance in driving down is going to be application specific in everything. So I can say that I'm an AI developer when I'm, when I'm creating these. You are now. I am now. And I have, oh, I, I'm choosing to call myself that. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn profile. I'm a business card. I'm a pretty business card now. 
That's perfect. That's, thanks so much. I think this is the kind of thing we can have, well, we should and will have numerous episodes on. I'm picking, probably going, starting to jump into that and go game AI, right? Let's, let's do an episode on that and talk about that in more detail and hopefully both our understanding and hopefully therefore the listeners understanding. So thank you so much for your time and your patience with me more than Colin, I think. Of course. I, I look forward to listening to all of the people coming to debunk everything I just said line by line. No, I don't think that's going to happen. So what we normally do at this stage is ask, is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation before we wrap up? Oh, that's a good question. If I had to add anything, I would say that this is definitely an unfinished topic. There's so much more we could talk about AI. I look forward to listening to everyone you can bring on to talk about the subject, both game AI and AIML. If you want to talk more with me in particular, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active outside of actual posts. I have no other social media. So LinkedIn, Christopher Covert, you can find me there. Look forward to the chat and I wish you the best of luck on the podcast. You have another avid listener. Well, thank you. I'll be adding you and uh, joining in your conversation. Yes, I love it when you know, an interview just feels like this flow and there's excitement and there's engagement throughout. So thank you again, Chris. Your ability to take complex concepts, create a simplistic analogy or scenario or relate it back to something that everyone can understand and then kind of grow from that was a pleasure to listen to. So thank you. Especially as I think AI is one of those things that people refer to often and really don't aren't very specific about what flavor they're talking about. You know, it's a tool set, isn't it? It's about having the right tool for the right job and just going, oh, we'll just fix that with AI doesn't really help you. Yeah, and I hope that people that maybe aren't building anything to do with AI, but, you know, when the next person pitches back to them that they're going to use AI to solve the problem, that at least they'll know where to start in terms of asking questions, which hopefully is one of the values of this podcast. Yeah, so onwards to our tame journalist, Andy Fawkes, who's going to give us a bit of a, an update on the latest happenings in simulation and training world. Hi, Colin. Hi, Tom. Uh, Hello. Really good, really good to be back. The first story we've got is very topical. One, because I am in Florida attending a little show called IITSEC. I don't know if you've heard of it, Andy. Can you tell us a bit more about IITSEC <laughs> and what's going on? I have heard of it. I went 15 years in a row, and we, perhaps we could talk about that later. <laughs> and I think we've explained to our listeners before, it's the Inter-Service Stroke Industry Training Simulation Education Conference. And in fact, it's been running in one shape or form since 1966, which is a long time. It started a naval event, Go Navy, but over the years became into service. Although it was to do with training systems, it's now, you know, as you've said, it includes simulation education as well. This year, I believe it's 17,000 people will be attending, according to the article in MST. I was down there picking my badge up yesterday, and yeah, you definitely get your foot miles in, your pedometer miles in around that place, and looks pretty well attended you know after the goings on of the past few years it's nice to be there in person but I think Andy you were reflecting on one thing that you felt might be missing from these sort of events if you want to jump straight into that I'm professionally disappointed that there was seemingly no hybrid aspect to this although I guess some of the videos will be made available afterwards I do feel that as I said, I went for 15 years in a row. And in those days, it's not that long ago, but it's obviously pre-pandemic and there was no alternative. And I think now everyone does know there's an alternative and that's doing things by hybrid. So sure, if people want to meet in person, they can. But if you can't, for whatever reason, can't afford it, you're unable. You know, I think personally, there should be a hybrid options to these events, particularly when we're talking about metaverse, talking about distributed training. 
that and, and there's an interesting article in in MS and T about what the themes are. Isn't it? Maybe you can... yeah. There's uh, there's an article in MS and T that provides a sort of good context to the whole event. Marty Kowchak interviewed the NTSA president as Admiral Jim Rock re- uh, retired. That's the National Training Simulation Association in the US. So that was really good to hear from Admiral Rob. I think he put a very interesting context to this about the challenges. Obviously, he reflected on you know what's going on in Ukraine, and we've covered that before. That's obviously part of the context. But he, he was talking about the effect of inflation on the technology, things becoming more expensive. He talked about difficulties in the supply chain, I, I guess, cutting off supplies to maybe certain Chinese or maybe even Russian uh, technology, maybe causing supply chain issues. And last but not least, is uh, something people have talked about for years, is the challenge of fielding capabilities in what he called a timely manner. I thought that was really uh, some good good context to the event that's going on this week in Orlando. I don't think you said it's in, it's actually in Orlando. Sorry, it's in or- yeah. Orlando. Yes, I didn't, yeah. I didn't go that yeah. far. I just want to go back to your point about the hybrid event. Yeah. I get your feeling. And one thing I wanted to mention, only because I am, I define myself as a reluctant eco-warrior, is that I think there's a very big argument for that now as well. And I think we've got to make sure that we travel because you should and there's a need to. You've got to get out there. You've got to see the kit and equipment. You've got to hold it. You've got to touch it. But if there is not that need to touch it and you just want to attend it and understand and, and then we've got to provide those options for all the other reasons you mentioned, but also why send out 20 people from UKMOD to go and do a, to fly out to Orlando to have a few meetings they could have kind of learned and, and absorbed through a remote link. Yeah, it's often more than 20 though. <laughs> <laughs> and going around the show, having a bit of a preview, you know, there's definitely a theme about the metaverse. There's definitely a theme about distributed training as ever. Yeah. It's slightly incongruous to talk about that in terms of the training and then not do it, you know, <laughs> not have the actions to do it during the conference, you know. And that's not to pick on IITSEC. Actually, that's a problem for no. many conferences. You know, they all have the same issue. So, yeah, look, it's great to talk to people. It's great to sort of have that discussion face-to-face. But there are many people that can contribute virtually, as we have been doing well for the last three years. Yeah. Why isn't that available? Why do we not think there is a hybrid option here? Is there a fear that if we start going more hybrid, the footfall drops, then people stop going to the physical location? And is that why the events are trying to move back from the precipice of that hybrid event? Well, personally, I think that there is that element to it. I think there's also, obviously, the event organisers went through a difficult time during the pandemic, and they just want to get things back, yeah. back to what they would call normal. But I, I think over time, it's just inevitable that consumers will want more hybrid events, because I want to be able to pick and choose which events I go to. I was delighted to go to Bath in the UK a few weeks ago for a NATO conference, and it it was great to meet people in person, but I think, I, you know, shout out to NATO on that occasion anyway, where they did actually make it hybrid so people could watch it. And of course, that wasn't a commercial event. It was NATO. So I certainly think government sponsored events should go hybrid as a matter of principle. And the reasons you've said also, Tom, about the carbon footprint of these events. So I totally agree with that. I think over time, as dare I say, it, the metaverse and all these technologies will just get better and better. The reasons for not doing any hybrid is going to be defensible. I'll let events off for a while. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe one one will come back to in the future. So our senior correspondent, Walter Yorick, who was a previous editor of MSNT, has written a book called All But Flying Assimilation, which sounds really interesting to me. Anyway, I, I'm sure if you sat in a conference of any kind and not just a history, when anyone touches on old simulation, they will show a picture of a, a French gentleman sitting in a barrel, and then the barrel is on top of another barrel. The reason this is shown off, deemed to be the first ever flight simulator, 
from 1910. So a long time ago, even I'm not that old, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but it's a long time ago. I think what's interesting about the story, it's definitely worth a read, is it wasn't because they were just trying to recreate the whole experience. What they were trying to do was to give the pilots or the trainee pilots a, a feeling of how to use the controls for this aircraft of the day, because it was designed specifically for an Antoinette aeroplane. And it had rather unintuitive controls. So if you look at the pictures on the right hand side, you turn a wheel to control the elevator and the left you use the wheel to control the lateral movement. So it's not like a joystick, which is actually quite an intuitive thing. This was, you know, you had to turn one and then turn the other. Your, your left and right were essentially having to control the aircraft. Of course, you use your feet to control it like a rudder. There were no fancy hydraulics or electrical. It, the, there's a whole bunch of guys standing around it controlling the aircraft. And when you see the picture, yeah, I guess they were shouted at the pilot saying, no, wrong, you turned it the wrong way. But sadly, the gentleman is actually sitting in this barrel, died three weeks later, apparently, in an aircraft accident, which is rather tragic. The lesson for us now is in a kind of still the role of humans, instruction, and also how simulation can really try and give much better feel for this kind of human factors of these uh, devices before not necessarily a flight simulator, any device. So, you know, the driving need was to try and understand these controls before they went into the air. It is fascinating because we think when we say simulation, we think, oh, stuff that happened in the last 20 years. And actually it's... It's at least 100 years old, probably probably older. Yeah, yeah well, according to this, it was 1910, this, this simulator. And I would say the rate of progress in simulation technology after that wasn't exactly fast. Even though the First World War, there was obviously need to train on the ground before the pilots took to the air due to the horrendous number of deaths for pilots. The rate of progress in technology then wasn't very fast at all, perhaps compared to now. But whether our ability to embrace technologies and get them into service quickly is any much better now, I, I don't know. That's the subject in itself. I love that we've picked a topic to discuss that is based on an image. So I'll um, do my best to make sure the show notes have a picture in it or at least a link to the picture so that we can, you know, if you would like to join us in the journey of the man in a barrel on a barrel doing the patting his head and rubbing his chest scenario <laughs> that actually turned out to unfortunately seem to be the chap he died three weeks later. Maybe we he still died. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, maybe there's more innovations to be maybe done on, some, that, on, on that way. barrel. But if you'd but, like that, then it'll be in the show notes. But also, the lesson is that he was the actual inventor of the simulator. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. But what we don't know is that these aircraft, because of the sort of the way they were designed, they tended to fall up, fall apart in the air anyway. So you can't unnecessarily blame the simulator in this case. That's horrendous. Yes. Andy, thank you so much, as always, font of all knowledge. Colin, I hope you have fun at ITSEC. Um, I'm absolutely having a lot of FOMO, and I wish I was out there with you right now. Everything we've discussed, including the picture, will be in the show notes, and I, I look forward to chatting to you next episode, Andy. Great stuff, Tom. Colin, thank you. Wonderful. This week, I think just to tail off the podcast, I'm going to ask the listeners to provide us kind of specific feedback. So on our news, how do we make our news section better? Are there any topics you want us to cover or any way in which we as the three of us can make it more dynamic or interesting from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Discussing this with Andy before the show, MS&T guys cover a lot of ground, do a fantastic job, but they're not everywhere. So if there's some interesting stories, especially from sort of outside our little corner of the world, then we, we'd love to hear more about that and potentially Andy can feature on that segment. So do get in touch. And the community is continuing to grow on the LinkedIn page. So just search for Warfighter Podcast on LinkedIn and press follow on the page. 
or alternatively, again, look in the show notes, have a look at our website, or even send us an email, a bit old school, contact at warfighterpodcast.com. That's all from me. Anything from you, Colin? No, nothing from me. See you in two weeks.